It is, without a doubt, one of the biggest lies that people both inside the church and outside the church believe. It is the most dangerous lie that as a result can affect your present peace and your eternal destiny. It's a lie that as a pastor for over 30-some years, I have heard repeated over and over again. It's a lie that we need to look at today on this Palm Sunday so that we can better understand the truth. Take your Bibles, turn to Luke 23. Luke 23. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, or you can follow on the screen. And as you do, I want to ask you a question. On a scale of 1 to 100, how good of a person are you? If you were to give yourself a number on a scale of 1 to 100, how good of a person are you? Now go ahead, pick a number right now. Go ahead and mark it down, write it down. I didn't say ask your spouse how good of a person you are. I said how good of a person are you from a scale of 1 to 100. Now the question may come up is well, what's, give me some perspective. Well, let's do that. The lower digits down here, like, you know, 1 to 5, down in that area. I mean, these would be people like axe murderers, thieves, people with five or more cats. I mean, that's the kind of people, just kidding, just kidding. But that, that's these people down here, right? I mean, when you think of the lower numbers, you're thinking of Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein. You know, you're thinking of Osama bin Laden. These would represent the lowest of the low. Now, at the top, a hundred would be Jesus, all right? None of you is there, so don't, don't be thinking that, all right? But let's say the 90s, all right, the 90s, they would represent Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Now, how many of you need to change your number, all right, as a result of all that? But on a scale of 1 to 100, how good of a person are you? Now, when you compare yourself this way, two things happen. The first thing that happens is this. When you compare yourself to others, you can begin to feel better about yourself. I'm certainly not as bad as these people here. And so you can start to kind of put your, put your chest out and say, yeah, I feel a little bit better about myself. You know, I'm certainly not as bad as them. But it can also cause you to feel worse about yourself. If you look at these people up here, you know where this comes out? There's a couple different places. One is science project time for elementary age parents, parents who have kids that are elementary age. Because you go into the science project when the science projects are presented and you go in and you think you did like up here, then you go in and you see this display and you know that kid doesn't have a PhD in chemistry. You know there's no way they could have come up with that all on their own. And you step back and thought, 
I thought mine was really good till I saw this. And your kids think that too. And they think, boy, I told you we should have had more help on this whole thing. And so you compare. Or, or let's say it's some event and the parents are supposed to bring food. And, and you quickly ran over to Wegmans and got some pie off the thing and put it in a, in, a, in a glass thing so you could make it look like you made the whole thing. And someone comes in and they made these cupcakes that would kill on cupcake wars no matter what. And you step back as a parent and say, I thought I was up here, but I'm probably down here somewhere. And my kid's going to be in therapy as a result of all this. And, and so, so you start comparing yourself. On a scale of 1 to 100, how good of a person are you? Today we're going to look at two people who were with Jesus hanging on the cross. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see these are not good people. Say that with me. Not good people. Turn to your neighbor and say, they're not good people. Go ahead and do that right now. Now, let's look at Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 32. Now, two other men, both criminals, were let out with him to be executed. Now, the word criminals there, some of your translations may say thief or robbers. Literally, the term means workers of evil. These were not just petty thieves. These were deeper criminals, and as a result, they're being crucified. See, crucifixion was only one of many methods of execution. Crucifixion was held off to, first off, publicly humiliate a person, because a person would hang there naked to the elements. And it was also meant to be excruciating pain. As a matter of fact, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion, which means out of the cross. That's the level of pain. So when we see that these guys are being crucified and that Christ is being crucified, it's meant to humiliate them. It's meant then to put them through excruciating pain. We also found it is an expensive way of execution because it would take four Roman soldiers. You had the centurion and three other soldiers that had to be there. And sometimes it would take days before someone would die from crucifixion. The, the victim would usually go mad from being exposed to the elements and animals starting to devour your flesh and the fact that you were out there in the elements and, and as a result it could be days before you died. It was rare for a Roman to crucify a Roman, but they would normally crucify Jewish slaves who were not just petty thieves, but, but guilty of insurrection, something major. And so we find that Jesus is hanging on a cross, and on both sides of him, there are two criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Look at verse 34. And it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers came up and mocked him too. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which said, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hurled insults and says, Aren't you the Christ? Save us and yourself. Now you notice over and over again, this theme is repeated of being a king. But it's done in mockery, in scorn. 
It started with the, the placard that was put above his head. It said, this is king of the Jews. It was meant to mock him. The soldiers who mocked him and insulted, it was meant to mock him. The people that were there were sneering at him and mocking him. And then the thief himself is throwing insults at him. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three snapshots from the hill. From the hill of Calvary. And we're going to find that it answers the lie I was telling you about. You want to know what that lie is? Here's the lie. Good people go to heaven. That's a lie. Because there are a lot of people who believe that good people go to heaven. Here's how it's expressed. Not that way, but the way it's expressed is this. You know, Pastor, I think what's going to happen when I die, God's going to take all the good things I did and all the bad things I did, and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. Guys and gals, I have heard that repeated to me over and over and over again. But here's the problem. It's a lie. It's a lie. And it's a lie that many, many people are believing. You see, it's the idea if we just kind of go above the midpoint, I mean, I'm not as bad as these people here, and definitely I'm not up here, but if I just get up high enough, God will look at my life and say, you did your best. Because they believe the lie that good people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Good people don't make it to heaven. Forgiven people enter the gates of heaven. And as we look at these three crosses, we're going to see three snapshots. The first is of Jesus. When you look at the cross that Jesus was hanging on, we find the first thing he said to the Lord was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And at the end, we find the second statement that he makes here at the end of that chapter is when he says this, and he says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. We find a lot about Christ by looking at what he did. You see what Christ did? He focused on other people and not himself. He focused on others, even in the midst of his pain. He had a focus on others. He didn't allow his pain to overcome his concern for others. In the book of Isaiah, it says he was a man of sorrows who was acquainted, who, who connected with our grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, that the God of comfort comforts us so that we in our comfort can comfort others with the same comfort we received. And then if you look at verse 5, why don't you look at verse 5? It says this, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. What that's saying is this, that, that when we suffer, we connect with Christ at a higher level. We connect with Christ at a deeper level. There's so many people that I've talked to in this congregation who are suffering either physically or mentally or emotionally and who said to me, when I go through that suffering, I sense that I connect with Christ, as Paul says, to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? Because we know he understands what we're going through. That's why when you go through something and you're sitting with someone who's been through it, there's a comfort there. This past week, we had a lady in our church, uh, woman who's 90 years old who had had a heart attack and she went in to go and have um, a stint put in due, due to the blockage that was in her arteries and I had the privilege of sitting there with with her daughter and and to minister to her daughter and that she was waiting and waiting for the procedure to be done and then to go back and and minister to to this woman as well 
And the reason, as I sat there, I thought the reason I feel I have comfort to be able to give to her is not because of some book that I read in Pastoral Theology 101. It's because I've gone through that. I've had those stints put in my heart. So I knew exactly the questions. I knew exactly the fears. I knew exactly the anxieties that was going on. And everything went well. And to show you the, the character of this woman, this follower of Christ, who, who's followed the Lord for all these years, when I went back to check in on her after the procedure was done, first thing, listen to me, first thing she said was this, Pastor, we can still have the Bible study at my home this coming Wednesday. <laughs> I went, wait a minute. <laughs> And you see, what she showed was the fact that she was focusing on others. And we find, we look at this middle cross, and we look at what Christ did, and we look at the fact that what he's focusing in on, he's connecting with the thief's grief. He's connecting with him. He could have approached him as a superior to an inferior, but he didn't. He said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He connected with him in the midst of his suffering, and it's what we're called to do as well. Not only do we see a lot about Christ as to what he did, but look at who he spent time with in these last hours. It wasn't the religious people. It was criminals. You know why? The religious people had fled. They'd gone somewhere else. What Jesus did, he came as a friend of sinners to the broken and downtrodden, to people that nobody else wanted to be around. And Jesus said, I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to spend time with you, and I'm going to connect with you in the midst of your pain. As a kid, one of my favorite Christmas stories on TV was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And the reason I love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I love the part with the Island of Misfit Toys. I love when Rudolph goes to the island and he goes to Jack in the Box. No, it's not Jack in the Box. It's Charlie in the Box. And Charlie says, I'm a misfit toy. Because who wants a Charlie in the Box? They want a Jack in the Box. Or the elephant that has spots on him. Or the train that has square wheels that can't move. It's an island of misfit toys. And you know why I like that story? Because so often I feel that's where I feel like I fit in the best. You see, what I find here is that Jesus is telling us, listen, I'm here for the misfits. I'm here for the downtrodden. I'm here for those that are really in need of unconditional love and acceptance because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. And Jesus is showing that to the thief. How many of you have ever served on a jury? Show of hands, please. I've only been called once. And when I got called in, I remember sitting there. It was down in Dallas, and I remember sitting there and the judge came in, and he said, I have a question for all of you. How many of you just asked yourself, as the defendant walked in, how many of you just asked yourself, I wonder what he did? My hand went up. And he said, that is not the right question. The right question is, I wonder what he's being accused of doing. Needless to say, I was quickly removed from the idea of the jury pool. But that was what I was thinking. What did he do? And then I thought about that this week. In the American justice system, we're innocent till what? Proven guilty. We start with that idea. We're innocent till proven guilty. And we have to be shown beyond a reasonable doubt the fact that we have guilt upon us for them to convict us. But think about God's kingdom. We are not innocent until proven guilty in God's kingdom. We are innocent even though we are undeniably guilty. The scripture makes it so clear. And that's what Jesus is doing. You see, if you've lied once, you're a liar. 
If you stole once, you're a thief. If you cheated once, you're a cheat. If you did any of these things as a result, Jesus is saying to all of you, you know what, no matter what you've done, I want to spend time with you. I love Thursday nights when we meet together with our friends and celebrate recovery. And one of the things that folks in Celebrate Recovery say to one another every single week when someone says, I almost didn't want to come because I fell into my habit or my hang-up or my hurt and I, I went back to it, the, over and over again, these men and women will say to them, you know what, though? Your responsibility is just to show up here. Just to show up. Because this is where Jesus is to meet your need, right where you are. See, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. Good people are not the ones called to be part of the kingdom. Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. That's the first snapshot we have of Christ. But then we have the thief, robber number one. And what does he say in verse 39 of chapter 23? One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. The word hurled, he, he threw them at him over and over and over at him. He hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. What's he saying? Get us out of here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't want to die. I don't want to go through this, this pain. I don't want to go through all of this. It's not what? Fair. It's not fair. You know, I did some research this past week about a phrase that Christ uses in the Gospel of Matthew when he talks about hell. And he talks about hell, and he says, hell is going to be a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That term, gnashing of teeth, refers not only to the pain that someone's going through, it refers to rebellion. The idea of someone putting their fist up in the air and saying, it's not fair. I don't deserve to be here. That's what this thief represents. And he may represent any number of you who just want to get out of jail free card. I mean, give me Jesus. Give me enough of Jesus so I can get out of jail. I don't want anything more than that. But just give me enough. And that's what the thief is saying. He's saying, I, I don't deserve to be here. Look, if you are, notice that, if you're the Christ, he's trying to hedge his bets. If you're really who you say you are, get us out of here. Get us out of this situation. How many times do people, when they're in a difficult situation, it's like, God, if you only get me out of this, I'll go, I'll go into ministry, and I'll go do whatever you want me. I'll go to Africa. I'll do whatever you want me to do. God, just get me out of this. Get out of jail free. And the thief turns to Jesus. He says, I don't deserve to be here. So the first cross, the cross of Christ, we see him connecting with our suffering. We see that good people don't get to heaven. Forgiven ones do. The, then the second cross, we see the fact that the robber is saying, I don't deserve to be here. I don't need to be here. I shouldn't be here. Get me out of here. But let's look at the third cross, starting with verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? We are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
See, what the thief is saying is, I deserve to be here. Now, here's the interesting point. If you compare this text with the other Gospels, what you'll find out is this. There wasn't only one thief throwing insults at Christ. The other Gospels tell us both thieves were doing it. Both thieves were throwing insults at Christ. What happened to this one that things changed? I'll tell you what happened. The first statement of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He was confronted with the grace, and he realized then he needed a Savior. Look at verse 41 again. That's the whole gospel wrapped up in one verse. Look at what he's saying. We are punished justly. The wages of sin is death. We are punished justly, for we're getting what we deserve. We deserve to be separated from God. But this man has done nothing wrong. He is who he says he is, and he is the one who's paying for my sin. You see, the gospel is this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's the thief on that cross is saying, I deserve to be here, but he doesn't. And therefore, then watch what he does. He turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, the name he calls him by is not Christ, not God. Jesus, Jehovah saves. Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Remember me in your kingdom. Remember when we were in the study of Joseph and when Joseph was in prison and he said to the cupbearer, when you get restored, remember me? Remember me? Some of you maybe have heard this kind of thing in a political campaign. All these people giving big gifts to these guys that are running for president. And you know what they're saying to these guys? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you're coming into your kingdom and you got the power and you got the authority. The thief is just saying to Jesus, says, Jesus, just, just, just remember my name. Listen, I'm sorry. The old spiritual that says, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, please remember me is totally scripturally inaccurate. You're not going to have to remind God to remember you. Jesus said this. He didn't say, okay, I'll remember you. Jesus, watch this, went even further. He went even further. He said, not only will I remember you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's grace. That's grace. To a thief, to an insurrectionist, to someone who's a worker of evil. The word paradise is the exact same word that was used to describe the Garden of Eden. It was a word that was used of a king when he talked about his garden. And what he would do is he would invite someone to be with him in his garden. Remember the old hymn, I come to the garden alone? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share is we tarry there. None other has except those that are his own. He says to Jesus, remember me. He's acknowledging his guilt. He's acknowledging his need of a savior. He's accepting his savior for who he is. He's seeing Jesus as the king. Listen, up to this point, nobody got the idea that he was the king. They were mocking him. They put the thing above his head. They were, they were putting the robe on him. They were mocking him. They were throwing insults. It's the thief. It's the thief who gets it. And it's a thief who then says, remember me when, not if, not possibly, but when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And he makes it so clear. I know who you are. I deserve to die. I deserve to be separated from God because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. And we need to understand what he's saying here. 
It's a lie. It's a lie. When you grab a hold of the idea that good people go to heaven, they don't. Forgiven ones do. It's an illustration of grace. Karl Barth, the theologian, said this was the very first church service. You got the cross, you got Jesus, and a bunch of criminals. I love it. See, that's what it is. That's what church is supposed to be. It's having Jesus in the middle of the whole thing, the cross is there, and a bunch of criminals. Remember me. And Jesus said, now, today, we're going to party in paradise. As I thought about this, I thought about, is there another illustration? I mean, this is such a beautiful illustration to share with someone, maybe a friend, when they ask you, what do I have to do to have eternal life? That thief didn't do anything but just hang there and turn to Jesus and say, remember me. I deserve to die, but remember me. And I came across this Old Testament king. His name was Manasseh. And Manasseh, his father, was Hezekiah the great king of Judah, who did all kinds of restoration, all kinds of great things. And Manasseh became king at age 12. He reigned as king of Judah for 55 years, the longest period anyone reigned as the king of Judah. Manasseh's grandfather was Isaiah, the prophet. So he had the lineage, he had the system, he was king, he had the model of a father who set up all kinds of great things. But here's what Manasseh did. He spit in God's eye. He spit in God's eye. He set up idols all over the land. As a matter of fact, he set up so many idols, he even put them in the temple itself. He caused for prostitution to spread throughout all the land. He set up idol worship to the god Molech which was this God that they would put fire in this hollow body of this, this statue, and they would, the hands would heat up, and then they would sacrifice children on this God's hands. And this man not only did that, he sacrificed his own son that way. Manasseh killed his grandfather Isaiah. Jewish tradition says he sawed Isaiah in two. This was a horribly wicked man. He was so wicked that it came to a point the scripture says he undid everything his father did. And as a result, he did more things that were horrible in God's sight than any of the nations all around them. He broke every one of the Ten Commandments, and God had finally come to the point. Look at 2 Chronicles 33.10. Just look on the screen. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. He kept speaking to him. Manasseh says, I'm going to listen not going to listen. Next verse. So the Lord brought against them an army of commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him off to Babylon. A hook in his nose, not a nose ring, a hook in his nose. And he drags him off to Babylon because God says, I've had it. No more. Next verse. In his distress, watch this. The word distress literally means when he felt hemmed in, when he felt he couldn't turn any place else. Watch. He sought the favor of the Lord. Read it with me. He sought the favor of the, when I say read it with me, it means with me. All right. He sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. He found God. You're like, yeah, isn't that rather convenient? 
I mean, isn't that rather convenient that all of a sudden this guy who killed all these people, sawed his grandfather in two, killed his own son, spread prostitution, idol worship, he finds God. Of course, God's going to get him, right? Next verse. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, and he listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. That's grace. That's grace. And so as a result, what we find here is we step back and we look at that and we say, that's not fair. There is no way that's fair. But you see, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. And let me tell you this. You want to know how much grace was flown on, shown on Manasseh? Watch this. If you go to a passage of Scripture that most of you skip over whenever you read the Bible, it's Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. Uh-huh, you skip over it. I know you do. You know the begats and all that goes on with that. You skip over it. Guess who's in the genealogy of Christ? Manasseh. That's grace. That's grace. Because you see, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. And someone said it this way, the mystery of the gospel is one person will hear with indifference and one will respond with faith. Which one will you be? You see, the question is this. Not what's your number, but when you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, Christ is your 100. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a 30, a 40, a 20, a 70, an 80. He sees you as a 100 because you're wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see you as condemned. He doesn't see you as a worm of a sinner. He sees you as accepted in the beloved because you're wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. And so as a result, we understand that what we're being taught here through these three crosses is this, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. The question is, have you accepted the gift? Have you accepted the gift? Are you the thief on the one side that just wants to get out of jail free card? Or are you the thief on the other that says, I deserve to die? He doesn't. Lord, remember me. Remember me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the truth of this word. Thank you so much for the promise that we have if we just confess you as our Lord and believe in our heart that you were raised from the dead, we can be saved with every head bowed, with every eye closed, with nobody looking around. See, you can acknowledge you're a sinner, but till you accept the gift, you can't call yourself God's child. So how do I accept the gift? By praying a simple prayer like this. It's not a magical prayer, but it's a prayer that communicates the depth of your heart. You can pray it right now in your heart, right seated where you are. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner, and I deserve to die. I accept 
what Jesus did for me as payment for my sin. I accept his resurrection as the power for victory over sin. I choose today to make him my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, we want to know it. You can either email me, you can stop by the Welcome Center and drop a Connect card off. You can come and talk to us afterwards. But today's the day to make that decision. Which one will you make? Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven ones do. Let's stand together as his forgiven ones and worship Jesus, Son of God.